G'day everybody and welcome back to the Talking Footy podcast. Each week across the footy season, we're talking with the biggest names in the game. I'm Hamish McLaughlin and this week's guest genuinely needs no introduction. He's been recognised as the greatest player of the 20th century. Of course, we're speaking about Lee Matthews. In this podcast, I'm going to discuss with Lee growing up as a young kid and what he dreamt of, his addiction to success, the move to Brisbane, and what he'd do if he was the AFL CEO for a day. I think we as a game, and I'm talking about the people who, who determine the rule, there's a few simple principles in the game when you think of it now compared to even 10 years ago. The number of bodies around the football and therefore the numbers of tackling that's going on that has tripled in a decade. Why aren't we getting more free kicks to the bloke with the ball? Lee's career as both a player and a coach has been crowned with successes. Eight club best and fairest, a Coleman medal, three All-Australian Guernseys, Four premierships as a player, another four as a coach. He's a special comments expert. He's a proud grandfather. He's done more, but that would mean taking more time away from the chat with the GOAT, the greatest of all time. Welcome, Lee Matthews. We're talking footy. So, Hamish, where do we start? Which which decade? Well, I don't know where. I was going to start with your nickname, Lethal. Your mother hated Lethal, didn't she? <laughs> well, I was her little boy. And uh, I think, uh, yeah, Lou Richards and Tom Pryor, who was ghosting Lou Richards back in that early 70s, somehow or other, uh, the, uh, the Lethal Lee sort of just rolled off the tongue and uh, so Lou uh, started to... But Mum thought it was actually uh, kind of, uh, what's the word, emphasising my brutality. Uh, she didn't <laughs> and her like little it. boy... Well, she said she didn't like it, but didn't, I don't know whether she didn't like it that much, but she... Uh, she was just, for some reason, she was in the same place at the same time with Lou, and I'm not sure where it was, uh, to be honest, and she, and uh, you know, Lou must have sort of mentioned that, and Lou said, no, I don't like, uh, Mum had said to Lou, no, I don't like it, and Lou said, Mrs Matthews, it'll make your son a millionaire. Well, I won't ask whether uh, that's right or not. What about Barney? Who, who does Barney. Barney? Oh, well, that was, the, that was the Hawthorne nickname, and all the Hawthorne people still call me that. That came from Peter Hudson. First year, 17-year-old, playing in the reserves before I'd even played senior football. And, uh, you know, the, as used to happen in those days when the uh, reserves would finish 10 minutes before the senior game, so the senior players would tend to be just watching the reserves game before they get got changed. And Peter Hudson said one day, look at that little bloke there, Lee Matthews. Doesn't he run like Barney Rubble, the, uh, the Flintstones character? So that stuck. So everybody at Hawthorne, even to this day, if I run into anyone from Hawthorne, it'll always be Barney. No one calls me lethal, to be honest. That's a public nickname, except Darrell White. Darrell White at Lions, the Lions thought it was a bit cheeky, so he used to call me lethal. He was the only one who he thought that was allowed to call me lethal. When people do, do you mind? No, no. Just another name? It's just, yeah, that's right. It's just a sort of non-diploma or something, but, uh, yeah. Just looking at your record, I mean, you've been playing, coaching or calling the best game in the world every year since 1969. Sort of yes. like Woodstock's never ended for you. Yeah, well, that is. No, I've been lucky. I mean, sometimes you have to sort of choose a path in life and sometimes the sliding door just opens. One door closes, another door opens. And I was zoned to Hawthorne, so it was a, a, zone, zoning came in about mid-60s. So it was only a few years, like I must have been 12 or 13. But you knew that if you were good enough, then Hawthorne was the team that uh, the Chelsea, where I where I lived was zoned to, and I went there as a 17-year-old, just automatically, really, and, you know, like, what's your goal? My goal was to get on the senior list. That, that's your starting your starting goal. And then one thing led to another. So I had a good 17 years, then I got offered the job to go to Collingwood as assistant coach, which only lasted for six months, and then I became senior coach for a decade. Fortunately, when the Collingwood ended, I could go and go to the footy talking about it in the media. One thing we know about the media, you get the best position in the stadium, You've got the uh, replays, you've got the stats, and you've got pretty good catering. So and you don't get hurt. And you don't get hurt. And then, of course, I went back to Brisbane and then came back to the media. So that what that means is, as you said, since 1969, almost 50 years, I've been going to the game. Different in the media. The media, you haven't... You've got a bit of performance adrenaline, which is good. I sort of enjoy that. But the result of the game doesn't ride on you. I mean, let's face it, in the media, we just want a close game so that, the, you know, there's some tension in the finish, but the club level where where your life as you know it finishes at the end of each game, playing or coaching, because that's your life is almost planned to that point. And we know it's only make-believe, you know, when it's all boiled down, but you, you treat it like it's 
life and death. So uh, I had about 800, uh, 800 games at the footy that were like that and another now probably at 300 where I don't care about the result, I just talk about it. You talked about performance anxiety. I remember you saying as a coach every now and again you'd feel so nervous before a game you'd have to go to a bathroom by yourself and sort of yeah. almost hide the fact that you were being sick. Yeah, well, sick as in just dry reaching. Uh, but nevertheless, yeah, no, the nerves in the stomach I found... I think my natural personality, I, I am better if I feel like I'm in control. And as a player, you're nervous and you're anxious, but you're going to sort of be in control of what goes on because you're out there in the, in the middle. But uh, as a coach, that you, you're in to a degree, you're controlled during the week. You know, we can plan training, we have training drills, what I say to the player, all that. You can plan that to a degree. But uh, it's something I think that all coaches have to be aware of. Simple principle. Uh, everybody thinks you're responsible for the team performance. You've got to think you're responsible for the team performance because otherwise you don't push hard enough. You've got to think you're responsible. What happens when the game starts? You go and sit with the fans. And you've got some control via the runner, but a minimal control, not the control that people think you have. So that lack of control is what got me really anxious as you got towards game time. As a, as a coach, so yes, my uh, my stomach used to churn a little bit, and uh, but yeah, you did. <laughs> I, I always remember when in, early in my Brisbane coaching days, and I think this probably happened fairly normal. Not every week, but you know, I always felt a bit nauseous, you know. And sometimes the nauseous was enough, yeah, that you might end up dry reaching. So you'd always go to a, go to one of the toilets or something. And I remember I walked in one day, and, and Alistair Lynch, you know, just happened to be you know around the toilets, and I thought to myself, this doesn't look good. <laughs> If I'm vomiting, one of our players seeing the coach looking like he's uh, he's not so nauseous that he that he might be uh, dry reaching a little. So uh, I always made sure that uh, I went to somewhere very private if I felt like the nausea was building up that much. I'm going to go back. I'm going to try and do this chronologically because there's so much to cover. But yeah, as a young kid, am I right in saying you asked your father what would he give you if you won five brownlows? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did. That was as a little kid who you know I never. When, if there's a thing that followed me through my life, I never had any shortage of ambition mm. and therefore I never got complacent because I could never achieve what I wanted. Like what I wanted was, you know, what's the five, all the five Brownlow medals is saying is, you know, no-one's ever done that. Like, in other words, you, you've kind of done something no-one else has, has done. And even when you're a little kid who didn't even know whether you were going to be able to play top level, that there was never any complacency in my psychology because I could never achieve what I wanted to achieve. So therefore, you had to keep pushing. By definition, I mean, even with the 12 grand finals, with the eight wins, four as a player, four as a coach, I assume with that said, you sit here unsatisfied, which yeah. seems ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I, well, I think it's one of the things, and I, I when Michael Voss retired, uh, and I, I made the comment that the sort of the, the, um, the fierce competitors and the driven people have a hole within that can never be filled. You can never get enough success to fill it because um, you always want more. And um, so, therefore, that sort of principle tends to apply. Like, yeah, OK, I, I was lucky enough to be involved in 12 grand falls. Well, why not 13, 14, 15, 16? I mean, Ron Barassi, who, who, who signs his autograph, Ron Barassi, 17 for 10 which is 17 grand finals for 10 premierships. I mean, so, uh, and even Ron would like 18 or 19. So there is, nothing can fill that hole of, uh, of needing, to, needing to succeed. And why is that? Because it's part of making you feel good about yourself, I think. You know, I think most, a lot of people are driven by lack of confidence, like fear of failure, insecurities, and therefore you're, con you're constantly got to be validating to yourself mm. By, the, by having some success, uh, you know, success in what your chosen field. To achieve what you did and to try and fill the hole that you said really could never be filled, did that mean that you prioritised football over family and everything else? I'd like to say I didn't, but I probably did. I'm, I'm sure my, my girls now are mid-40s and I think they felt that uh, Dad might have been around, mm. but emotionally you're not necessarily there as much as, as, as you, know, you would like to be. You know, in a perfect world, no doubt, in a perfect world, you know, the, the, I was so sort of driven about my, I guess, the football part of my life that other parts of my life probably suffered. I, I think that's just one of those 
one of those uh, prices that had to be paid. And you'd like to, you'd like everything to be perfect, but I think that's a fair comment. Do you reckon you're a better grandfather as a result? Absolutely. Yeah, I think one of the things that happens for all of us probably. I'm you're 65 now. As you sort of get into the middle age onwards, family becomes even more important because ultimately, you know, when we're little old people, the only thing we've really got is our family yeah. and our memories. And the memories might be nice, but I always think memories is like junk food. They, uh, they taste good when you think about them, but they don't give you much nourishment because all they are is memories. What you want is fresh memories. And I'm probably not going to have any of those in a sporting adrenaline sense, which is why I have an interest in the racehorses because my interest in horses is about getting that buzz that you can get, you know, when your horse, you know, wins a race. Uh, that's uh, for a moment or two, a little bit of similar to your post, your feeling at the end of a, you know, end of a game or after you've kicked a goal or you've won a close game. That that adrenaline rush and that stimulation. I was talking to Nick Rewald about it the other day. Exactly that. That's what you, the adrenaline rush you get out of sport is really hard to have in, in normal life because it's like a moment. It's like these unbelievable moments of de de exhilaration, or I use the word depression. I mean, not the illness depression, but the real downer you get on the other side. That's the coin. Yep. On one side, there's this unbelievable upper, and on the other side, there's unbelievable downer. But that's the stimulation and the roller coaster that you put yourself on. And once you stop, and if you're involved in, in, in sport, once you stop doing that, you don't get that extreme emotions that often uh, and uh, that's one of the things you miss. I was reading uh, something on the Rolling Stones and Mick Jagger was saying that the reason he continues to play is if he didn't he would miss the adulation from the fans yes. and that is when he feels best in his life. Yep. He feels that adrenaline kick. Absolutely empathise with that. You can understand that point. It's one thing about the, all the old rockers are in their like 60s now. But no, that is it. And, and, and that adulation, in other words, it's a drug. It is a drug. Now, the, the adulation, obviously, when you're performing the, like the Rolling Stones and Mick Jagger, you don't always get adulation uh, yeah. as a footballer, but you, you, you get your own sense of doing something well and good. And you get little moments, you know, you kick a goal, you do something good, you sort of have this feeling of... This, uh, this natural feel-goods, uh, which is what we, we sort of strive for, I think, and sport provides sometimes. Hi, sorry to interrupt. Emily Angwin here. I just wanted to remind you of some of our other episodes of the Talking Footy podcast. There's Wayne Carey. Go and have a couple of beers, maybe a few more than a couple, after the game. Recovery Saturday and by lunchtime Saturday afternoon would be all together as a team. And that's why I think part of why we we're such a good team, because we we're so close off it. You know, a few more beers with the, with the mates. And, and if we didn't have a Friday night game the week after, we'd generally back up again on Sunday. <laughs> so it was not a bad stint. Trent Cochin. It's a game. I know that a lot of people's lives <laughs> and weeks depend on the result, but the reality is the sport I play is a game, whereas my life is what's most important. Bob Murphy. Rodney Ede, the tyrant, took you and Scott West aside in a secret meeting and said, start off a bit of trouble today. Now, I didn't know anything about that. First bounce of the practice match, I found a bit of a sore spot for you, and then all of a sudden for me, the lights went out. Make sure you check them out and be sure to leave us a review. It's easy. Jump on iTunes, search Talking Footy Podcast and give us a rating. Also, feel free to let us know who you want to hear from next on Twitter using the hashtag TalkingFootyPod. Thanks for listening. I'll let you get back to it. What was extraordinary was how quickly everything happened for you. So you got drafted to the Hawks, as you said, because you were in their zone in Chelsea. You played your first game, you got married, became a father, played for Victoria, played in a premiership, and won your first of eight best and fairest. You hadn't left your teenage years. Yeah, that was 1970-71, all that happened. Um, and uh, when you think back on it, yeah. But, it, oh, yeah. but things, you know, like sliding store moments happen. And I think, but... What it did for me is I lived, and I know when I coached, the first thing you want is all your players to get married and have children because I think we're more stable when, when we're married with children. I happen to be married with children very young, so that helped my football, I'm sure of that, because that uh, being the sort of young buck out and about uh, didn't, didn't really didn't really happen. So, uh, yeah, life... Uh, yeah, a lot of things... They, all those things you mentioned all happened in 1970 and 1971. So there was a, a lot that went, went on in that uh, 12 months. Just on uh, married and having children, one of the things... I mean, you've always been uh, nothing if but pragmatic. 
you still, or would you still preach to your players, if you're going to make love to your wife or partner in January, make sure it's protected <laughs> sex so you're not having a baby? Oh, absolutely, that one. Yes, no, I always remember back in, uh, it was, uh, it was 2000, 2000, the year 2000, and we were about to play a, a semi-final, knockout semi-final against Carlton and... Uh, uh, Daniel Bradshaw's uh, wife, uh, Ange, and we knew that she was just about to, to become a mother And anyway, but she went into labour on the Friday night leading into that game and, of course, Daniel went, went to the birth so he, couldn't, he didn't play in the, in, in the game. So I did say to my players, now, you're professional athletes here, you should be trying to be pretty careful, if you can, that you don't become a parent or your wife doesn't have the have the baby in in September. At least try and organise your life a little. The players thought I was joking. I was being serious. <laughs> Makes a lot of sense when you're sitting here saying it now. Yeah, yeah. From Hawthorne to Collingwood, because we've got to skip through some yeah. years, but you were sent a letter by a Collingwood supporter who was desperate to see you break the Premiership drought as coach. And within the letter, there was a quote. Ah, uh, yes, yes. Yeah, this was in uh, 1990. I mean, I started coaching Collingwood. Look, when you think of it, 19, I, I finished playing in 1985. Um, at least I was got into a grand final. We got beaten easy by Essendon and I was gone. I was barely getting a game by the end. So there was no thought that I was going to be able to play on. I got the opportunity to go to be the, a succession planner. Collingwood, I was going to be assistant coach to Bob Rose for 12 months. I mean, Bob Rose was part of all this and, and take over at the end of 86, but when you when we look back on it, after round three of 86, Collingwood had lost the three games, was almost bankrupt as a football club. The reason that the banks, and it wasn't so, they, wasn't, they weren't controlled by the VFL back in those days, the banks didn't close the club down, is you've got to make changes. New chairman, after round three of 1986, new chairman, new CEO, new general manager of football, new senior coach, all up to round three of 1986 and uh, that was how I started at Collingwood all of a sudden I'm senior coach and uh, I'll still remember the phone call on the Sunday morning after that round three loss and I think it was against North Melbourne at the MCG and Bob Rhodes was on the phone about eight o'clock in the morning and he said Lee I think it's time you took over well I didn't even know what the assistant coach in the part-time year was doing so I was ready uh, so anyway but that one thing led to another so we actually uh, we uh, um, we almost made the finals in 86 finished down the bottom in, in, in 87, but we had some good young players coming through, Gavin Brown, Gavin Kuzisko, Damien Monkhurst, Mick McGuan, good players, good, they turned out to be really good players coming through the under-19s. And we, so we got up into the action in 88 and 89, but we lost both the, all the finals that we went into, so we were in knockout territory. Going into 1990, to, uh, I guess to, uh, to cut the long story short, I got a letter from this lady who sent me a quote that was coined by General Patton, the World War II American general, apparently in dressing his troops one day, and, and the quote has stuck with me ever since. We use a little bit of a, a theme uh, for the Collingwood Premiership, and it said, accept the challenge without reservation or doubt, risk the depression of losing, so you may experience the exhilaration of victory. And I thought to myself, that see, Collingwood had played in the nine grand finals in the previous 30 years and lost them all. So the fear of failure, the old collie wobbles thing, you'd get to the final step and then you'd fall over, was kind of one of the things that we all have to confront because, as I said before, you, you win a grand grand, if you get to the grand final, I mean, winning it is unbelievably high. The exhilaration's the correct word. And the down or the depression when you lose is just shocking. You know, you just got to remind yourself the sun's going to come up the following day. You know, you feel like the world. So the accepting the challenge of that, that fact, that reality, is part of what you, you have to do. We all have to do. And, you, and, uh, and that was um, something that stuck with me ever since. And when I wrote a sort of book a couple of years ago, Accept the Challenge was the title, because in, a, in, a, in one sentence, that's what sport was for me. So General Patton talks about the depression of losing or the exhilaration of victory. Yeah. Eight premierships but four losses. Which is more painful for you of the two emotions? The exhilaration, is it a greater high or is the depression a more significant low? Well, probably grand final day in a way. The, the, the Well, grand final day is when they're most extreme. So, OK, the, 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 the downer of losing is, some, is in some way tempered by the fact it's done, it's finished, there's no next week. Like, in other words, you can't do anything about it. And one of the things that happens in grand final week, the, the pressure of knowing exactly that, the upper and the downer, is the tension and the anxiety build-up. And I, sometimes I always 
think to myself, both as player and coach, you get to five minutes before the grand final and your animal's in a cage, you just want to be let out. Like, let's end the anxiety, let end the pressure, let's go and play the game and find out. You know, whatever happens at the end of the game, we want to get the anxiety over and done with. But in a home and away game, the, 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 particularly as a coach, the, the sort of the down of, of losing is a stronger emotion than the feeling of satisfaction, because that's all you got as a coach, a bit of satisfaction that we survived today and, uh, and, and we won. So for me, the, uh, the, the pain probably was always more severe than the, uh, you know, than the upper of winning. Sounds like that survival mentality is almost a relief with a win yeah. as opposed to anything else. Yeah, it is. But certainly as a coach, it plays a little bit different because you're a part of it. And, yeah. and really, the, one of the things that you get is that that sort of post-game ten minutes when you know when you sing the song and you've survived. You know, you've had the contest. I mean, you know, footy, particularly physical contact footy, is the closest you're going to get to civilian war. You know, let's not it's not war, but it's actually a really combative contest, physical contest between you and another group of uh, another group of people. So. Uh, so that, but that 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 post-game sort of feeling. The only thing about a grand final is that that might last for about a day. Then, for me, it's last year. Yeah, you know, like that special. That's the special exhilaration. Is 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 the hour or two after a grand final. By the following morning, it's only it's yesterday already for me. Just on uh, on nineteen ninety, you've experienced some extraordinary highs. But walking down the steps. Yeah, as coach of Collingwood, where does that rank? Well, I mean, the moment, the, the the thing, particularly as a as a as a coach, even more so than the player. I mean, as a, as a coach, you're outside. You've got some idea of how much time's gone, how far in front you're on the scoreboard. And this little is <laughs> a term I used to use when I was in the coach's box. I thought if we were more goals in front than minutes to go, we would probably win. That that's where I often use that on the. On the uh, on, when I'm doing the broadcasting, but that was just a coaching thing. Like the, the other words, I want to get to the stage where we can't lose, and that Collingwood, and I a lot of things slip out of my memory bank in footy, but I still can vividly remember sit the coach's box, which is the old member stand. Tony Shaw, great Collingwood captain, turned inside, little drop punt pass to Damien Monkhurst, 40 metres out, goes back, kicks the goal, puts his eight goals in front. There was no countdown clock then, but it was about 28 minutes gone. You figure, oh, we can't lose now. So that was the moment that I accepted we can't lose, we got to, we're going to win. Oh, it's beautiful. I mean, that, that's, that, so that moment is the thing you strive for so hard. And that's when I thought, oh, I'm going to go down now. We'll sort of wander down to the uh, interchange bench and just join, the, uh, join the, the people down the bottom for the last minute or two before the siren went. So that, that's, that's what you're searching for, the moment... Sometimes it's the siren. In a close game, it's the siren. But the moment when you accept in your own mind you can't lose, we've won and we now can no longer lose, that is the best feeling. Just jumping around a little bit, back in 1976, life has a way of keeping us all pretty grounded. You and your brother Kelvin played in a premiership together, which I assume yep. sort of is almost yes. like a lifelong dream. And then three days later, you lose in many ways the sort of the heart and soul of the football club and Peter Crimmins. Peter Crimmins, yeah. Yes, well, yeah, well, yes, it does. I mean, Crimo, we all knew that he was, he was very ill and the, the, the build-up to it with the, you know, with the testicular cancer and, uh, and uh, I didn't... I mean, it still came as a shock because I guess it often happens, you know that, that he is fading but not that, that, that it was going to happen, so it's still a shock. And, and he was... Um, it's always not so... That, it's always easy to say nice things about someone who's passed away, but he was a really bonding factor within that club. He was, he was one a really effervescent, lively sort of personality that sort of bonded all facets of the football club together. Because it's 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 wrong that teammates are necessarily good buddies. Mm. You don't want to be enemies with your teammates, but even that can happen as long as you as long as your cause and your objectives the same. You know, I always think you can like them or don't like them, but as long as you respect that we're all heading in the same direction. That's what football clubs are all about. But everyone liked Crimo. I mean, he was a fantastic bonding influence within the, within the Hawthorne Football Club. But yeah, the, the, the very young age. I mean, Darren Mullane got killed, of course, um, in a car accident. But at 25 years of age, but their their lives sort of ended at a, at a very early stage of their uh, of their, their lives, let alone their football lives. 
You said once, if Peter Crimmins was Luke Skywalker, you were Darth Vader. You yes, very that was probably the case. Oh, well, the way we played football, really. Uh, yeah, that we uh, we used to. Yeah, that that's true. I mean, he was he was the first rover. I was the second rover. Yeah, from pretty much nineteen seventy till nineteen seventy four. He didn't play a lot in in seventy five. That's when the illnesses started to. Set in, but he, you know, everyone, everyone would have loved Crimo, but yeah, no, I was a bit of Darth Vader. I did a bit of damage to opposition players, I guess. So, uh, so uh, yeah, yeah, no, uh, the uh, that was that was an apt, an apt description of the two of us. The Brisbane move from Langwarren to Chelsea to Brighton, from your first game to post coaching Collingwood, you've moved about twenty k's in your life, from yes, what I can gather. Yes, yes. When Brisbane came knocking. How much thought goes into moving states and packing up and going again? Well, a lot. Yeah, that that point. You know, I hadn't shifted far. I was born just outside Frankston, and and I shifted about fifteen k's in the first forty five years. And and I'd been I'd, I'd been doing the media for three years. And when I finished at Collingwood at the end of ninety five, I I didn't think I'd not not coach again at some point. But you know, 80, uh, 86 came, eighty eight came, and uh, sorry, 80, 86, 87, 88, and then. Late in late in '88, I, I got asked by Fremantle, was I interested in their coaching job? I can't remember what their circumstance was, but I and I been our personal way away. No, I, I I'm not really interested. And then then Brisbane came knocking, and I I said to them, I, well, I still remember when uh, Jeff Brown, who was the AFL solicitor at the time, but also very good friends with Andrew Ireland, who was CEO of of, of Brisbane, and uh, and I, I got a call. I was at the footy doing doing the work for the Herald Sun, this Sunday afternoon game. Got the call and uh, and Jeff said, pretty simple, he said, listen, Brisbane, Brisbane Lions would like you to come up and coach them and pay a half a million dollars to do it. But this is 1998. That, that, that pricked my attention a little bit. You 1998, know, that's, that's the equivalent of yeah, that's what, that, one and a half sort of now well, probably. Probably, yeah. It was 20 years ago now. So there was a big financial incentive. And even then, though, I didn't necessarily... Uh, I was, that was probably, roughly speaking, double what I was yeah. getting paid from a lot of media stuff. I was doing, and I remember I rang up Graham Allen because Gubby, who came, was the football manager at, at Collingwood when I became coach. So he was there for the ten years. He drifted out into the marketing department at Collingwood. So I kind of, but he's always a good friend and a confidant. And I went out and we caught up that Sunday night. And I said, I guess what happened today? You know, I just wanted to tell him. And he said to me, he said, if you go up, I'll come with you. And so all of a sudden, you kind of had someone who was a confidant that you trusted. Like, I'm a pretty harsh personality and Gubby might be deep down, but he's very uh, networky, likeable, like gets on well with people. That's why I think we've been a reasonable. I'm pretty hard-hearted and he, he you know, gets on well with people. So that opened it up fractionally longer. But, and, and a few weeks later, and, and we, Drew Morford passed away a couple of weeks ago, unfortunately, as we know, but it was his, must have been his 50th birthday party, something like that, middle of August. Or, or something like, and and about that was the night for some reason. Thinking about it, came I'm going to do it, and uh, and so basically the the decision was okay. Let's let's go and have a go at this. The the what happened with Brisbane with premierships? Not that was not even in the recesses of my mind. I just go up there. We'll do the best we can because really you know. And uh, so one thing led to another. So yeah, and and I still live up there 20 years later. So you never know where life's going to take you. I, Fair chance I'm going to spend the second half of my life in uh, in Brisbane when uh, you know going up into my 45th year. But never thought that would happen. So without the sort of the offhand remark to Gubby, you wouldn't have gone. That had a big significance. Yeah, right. I might not have. Yeah, no. If you say what, like, yeah, there was a there was a big earn to be had. That that's that's part of it. Um, there's a stimulation of again the thing about the media that you don't get is that stimulation of the actual result and being involved in it. You don't get the pressure, but you don't get the stimulation as much. So, so I kind of thought, you no, know, well, if I don't do it now after three years out of the system, it, you know, you, you you either do it or you you don't. Um, and but the, but Gubby coming up with me gave me a, I think a sense of uh, you know a sense of comfort that someone who I had been in a partnership with, and the Lions were prepared for that to happen. And you know we had we had total autonomy in a sense of you come up and you do run the footy department. Andrew Allen was CEO, and so we you know you don't get too many opportunities where you can say, well, okay, it's my way or the highway with the with the you know with what we wanted to do. I loved in your book you said on September seventh, nineteen ninety eight, you landed in Brisbane to do a press conference and met the players. You grabbed a copy of the Courier Mail and you realised 
you were in an AFL outpost. <laughs> what and can I tell you, you still are. 20 years later, there's no more AFL in the Courier Mail. Courier Mail is the daily paper, obviously, up there. And it's a Queensland paper, not just a Brisbane paper. But, yeah, the, uh, the, uh, the AFL, uh, I say to Melbourne people, think Melbourne Storm in Melbourne. I mean, Melbourne Storm been an outstanding football club, but they might get a little article there somewhere, about 10 pages in the Herald Sun. And, uh, and that's what the AFL is up in, uh, up in, up in that, part of the, uh, that part of the world. So it's very different. It's a very different environment. But the other thing, of course, that's happened in that era, you know, the internet is now. Uh, is now. So therefore, you can keep up with what's going on in the AFL world outside just purely the Daily Paper. But if the Daily Paper was your guide, <laughs> you wouldn't even know it existed. Did you get picked up by Graham Smart when you oh, Yeah, I did. I, well, this is one little thing. It's like... Uh, yeah, Graham Smart was the property steward. So the prop I got picked up in the property steward's van. And I thought to myself, well, if you want people to feel like this is a you know, high-class, high-status organisation, don't pick them up in the property steward's van. So the, so the uh, first initiative was if we pick anyone up we're trying to recruit or introduce to the club, first, Gary O'Donnell, the, uh, uh, the, uh, the, my assistant coach, who came up, I, Gary O'Donnell was one that I asked to come up as an assistant coach, used to use the term, you only get one chance to make a good first impression. So, so take it. So any, any, when we're introducing anyone to the Brisbane environment, make sure they're not getting picked up in the property steward's van. You know, let, let, at least get picked up by someone who's uh, in, a, in a nice car. Just on the coaching, something I read that Ross Lyons said once, I'd like to ask you about, but he said, coaching takes grown men to places they should never have to go to. When you see a new coach appointed, whether it be Chris Scott or um, Brendan Bolton or Simon Goodwin, you think, I wonder how long it's going to take them to do unusual things. It doesn't take long. Well, unusual things. I guess it's how you react to that simple philosophy I've mentioned earlier. Yeah, everyone thinks you're in control. You've got to think you're in control. But for, pretty soon you work out, well, I got, I'm part of the jigsaw puzzle, clearly, a big part of the jigsaw puzzle, particularly in modern footy now where you've got a footy department of 30 or 40 non-players. So there's a lot of people that are going to contribute to it. It's not like even when I coached Collingwood, I did 95% of the coaching. Now the senior coach is probably doing 20 or 30% of the coaching and delegating the rest. So it's a very different role. But even, it doesn't matter what your role is, you're still the person held responsible and you're going to hold yourself responsible and that creates, uh, you know, that 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 creates, um, particularly on match day, I mean, like the television cameras love keeping the camera on the on to get the emotion of the coaches on match day. But there, it is only a letting go of emotion. It doesn't mean you're out of control. But it means, you know, that sometimes you just do some things in the coach's box, you know, that are just anguished, you know. Were you a yeller? Uh, not much, no, no, only to myself a little. No, I, no, I don't think I was. I was a watcher, not a yellow. Even, even when I go and watch footy, I've never been a barracker in any stage of, of my uh, my wife. Uh, Deb often says, "You just go to the footy, and I'm all, I'm like a sphinx. I just watch." Um, so uh, now in the coach's box, I mean, the, the emotion mainly came for me where it was, oh, we, you know, where we stuffed up or something. Ah, oh, there's a, you know, an anguish emotion. Or if we sort of kick a goal or something like that, there's, 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 you almost cheer like the, like the fans do. But in terms of the, um, the coach's box itself, no, I wasn't a, I wasn't a yeller. Not too many coaches, I think, are yellers, but they're only yelling to themselves and, and letting go, uh, go the heat of the moment. I was reading a, um, a coach's survey and some words that was used were used. Depressed, sleep-deprived, anxious, lonely... It's not a trade you want to go into without some degree of sort of well, understanding yeah, where you're going to go. The one thing of all of the, it's, but it's the buck stops position. Like whenever the, whenever anyone, fans, media, look at the team performance, there's a lot of players. There's 22 players. They don't just tend to highlight one player as being the bloke who, who lost them the game, but they'll always look at the coach who's who represents that off field group of uh, what did he do, what didn't he do, all those kind of things that. Like, there are only, only hypotheses, of course. You know, like, if anything you didn't do doesn't mean if you did it, it's going to, uh, it's going to make a difference. So uh, that buck stops is the thing that that's, the, that's kind of like the greatest pressure. That, yeah, and, again, you've got to think everything you say, everything you do. What I used to love, Hamish, was, though, you'd, 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 you'd say you'd, you'd win or lose, but say you'd lose. And I know uh, my, uh, my wife, Deb, and, uh, and her two kids who, who were a bit younger when they came up to Brisbane, when we get in the car to go home, 
No one had say anything until I said something. It was like, you go to your cave. Oh, that was my personality. You go to your cave. Then about lunchtime the day after, you come out of your cave. You come out of your depressed state and you start planning ahead. That's the great cycle of, of sport, really, because then you start thinking about, now, what are we going to do at training? Who might we leave out? Who might we bring in? What am I going to say to the players in the review process? Like, so you start planning ahead and, and that's that, that uh, but that, that intervening uh, period <laughs> between, say, the, uh, the siren going and you, uh, and you lose and, and maybe that the, the, next, uh, the next hours, and some don't necessarily uh, have that uh, space, but I did. I, I, most of those went to my cave. I didn't particularly want to talk to anyone. I just wanted to uh, work it out within, the, within my own sight. You've got to get used to losing. I mean, you're one of the greatest yeah. coaches the game has ever had and you are losing every third week. That's it, yeah. That's the reality. I mean, you do your mathematics, 15 or 22. 15 wins is a good season. That's seven losses still. So the fact is, the, you know, the reality is that you're going to lose every third week at the best. That's the best it gets. I mean, that's a winning ratio of 66%. And uh, almost no one gets that high. I mean, I the Geelong people of this last generation, Chris Scott's, 72%. I think Joel Selwood is still about 80%. That's how good Geelong have been since Joel Selwood started playing. But almost inevitably, uh, you, if, once, if you're involved for a generation or so, uh, you, you're going to lose every third week at least, at a minimum. Just back to the playing for a moment. Of all your moments as a player, which moment do you recall when I ask you to think of the day or the moment or the time that makes you feel the best, most memorable? Um, funny, my, I look back on my playing days and, and they are, are fairly vague. I sometimes, I sometimes think to myself that in my natural personality and my playing persona, I was going to another place. Like, the playing persona that I that was me, and it was me, is not me outside the white line at all. It's like a different person. And sometimes I think you go into that different world and when you come out of it, you can't necessarily remember it, remember it vividly because I have very... Um, I don't have too many vivid memories of my actual being out there, like visualise yourself, uh, yourself being out there. So the, the, the moments of greatest exhilaration for me were the, the premiership moments as coach. The, the ones, again, the point where we accepted Vic, the moment where we think we can't lose, that kind of, that kind of moment. Here it is! The Brisbane Lions have done it! The Hawks, the Bombers, the Crows, they couldn't do it in the 80s and the 90s, but the Lions have gone back to back to back, become the greatest side of the modern era. They are football's invincibles. I can't sort of remember too many playing ones. I mean, it's easy to say when I was captain in 83 and you went up and got the Premiership Cup. That's just a fantastic sort of moment for any, any player. It's funny, one of the things, and I don't know if this says something about my personality, one of the things I can almost visualise, I played a, a good game in 72-73, like a well, best game I ever played. A lot of the ball, I kicked 11 goals. I can't remember any of it. But I can remember some one last moment. I was running in to kick my 12th goal. And there was an opponent and Wayne Bevan, my Hawthorne teammate in the goal square, and the opponent came at me and I, I hand-passed over his head to Wayne Bevan who kicked the goal, which would have been my 12th goal. I can sort of remember that. And that's about it. I can say about the, it's, it's the only thing, from, this is back in 72, 73, it's a long time ago, but it's, it's, I could sort of remember, I can remember little moments and little sketches uh, but I think sometimes for me, I, you, you know, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't a very good football athlete. There was nothing, I mean, I was just average, sort of average speed, average endurance. You know, they had pretty good strength and balance, so that was good. Ball skills were okay. But the thing that, the thing that whatever I was good at was more mentally being able to push myself and, and yeah, be aggressive, play with a, a, a real high level of aggression. And that overflowed into brutality, you know, a bit of rough stuff every every now and again. So that, so I was sort of I was going to a place on the field that I didn't even like myself that much because I was that driven that it was almost, almost scared me. Some of the things that you do on the spur of the moment that were born out of wanting to win and therefore hating the opposition at the time because they were between me and winning. A hand pass to Ward Allen Davis and that back. That coming down. 
And a free kick for Alan Davis. Oh, right, goes Matthews. Off. For your free kick against uh, Matthews and Cable goes down. Oh, look at Matthews. Dan Turvis threw the ball out. forward. Oh, he's heavily left met by Lee Matthews. So maybe that's that's my reason why I can't remember too many too much of my playing in terms of being able to visualise being out there. You almost went into a different state of being. I think so. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. But is there anything else in your life where that occurs? Because people, you know, I always yeah. get asked, "What's Bruce like? What's Dennis yeah. like? What's Lee like?" I said, "As good, he's like your grandfather." Yeah. But, yeah, but that is completely different to how you play. It is. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's true. I, it is. No, there's no other part of the world. That's what I mean. When I when I walked off the field for the last time in 1985, 33 year old, and I was wrecked and I was gone, and I and I remember coming into the rooms and and my dad and my older brother came in about half hour after the game, and I felt this enormous peace, because I didn't have to push myself onto what I thought I needed to do inside the white line to be at my best, and part of that was yeah that part of that was being so callous you know and so brutal if necessary, that I didn't like that person and I always thought to myself. I, uh, and I said it, I used the term, it was like the dark part of my soul came out in, inside the white line. Yeah. But it never was there in any other part of my life, I don't think. Just in terms of you know, finding things difficult on the, on the field, was, what, what was harder for you, being a player in your first year or your last? Ah, uh, last. Yeah, because you know it's just sliding. I mean, when you're, when you're young and you're just insecure and you're just trying to survive, you're just trying to get a game, I mean, that's... that's but at least there's, you know you're growing. Yeah. Oh, it's really hard in that last bit when you know your body's wearing out, you know, you're mentally wearing out, your reflexes are going, players who you're used to sort of all of a sudden... People say, who are your hardest opponents? And I said, everyone I played on in 1985 because you're just... You're physically, your reflexes were got Everything was going, but it's not going to get better. You know, it's it's like ageing in general. <laughs> you know, it's you're not you know it's never going to be reversed. So yeah, so it's really hard. And I, one of the things when I coached was trying to be conscious of that that in fact the hardest part of your life is that last bit, and it's it's hard because everyone has to do what's best for the club, and you kind of got to know that 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 the club can't keep you if you if they think the succession is means that you have to go, but. Uh, you know, trying to do that with some sensitivity is, is, is a really important thing for footy clubs because it is really hard for the, for the veteran players who are... The, the, modern, the modern conditioning processes are defying the ageing processes, so more players are now playing to play well into almost their mid-30s. That's because the conditioning processes are so good they can defy it, you know, they can work out how much you should be training. Not, not everyone, not all, one in all in, which was the coaching philosophy and the playing philosophy up until a generation ago. Just going back to the way you played, given late 70s, 80s was your era, do you think if you played now, you would have been able to control your state of being to a point where you weren't getting rubbed out? I think so. Yeah. yeah I think so. I think, you, I mean, one of the things players, and I, I think I would do, every player gets to know to, to there's, there's one thing to push the envelope and there's one thing to bust them. Like, in fact, I only got actually reported twice, maybe in, in a third time if you had the deregistration in 1985. But, so, but, it, but I did a lot of things that would certainly be reported now, but so did a lot of other players too, I suppose. So I think you actually play within the rules as they're set. And even, even uh, uh, one of the things I love about the game, the game is much more dangerous now than when I played because the incidental contact and the speed that the bodies are moving is much more dangerous. But you, there's nothing you can do within the game now, legally, that deliberately hurts an opposition player. Like, it used to be the last bastion is you could grab them and dump them in the tackle. Yeah. Uh, but that now, you can't do that. If you dump them in the tackle and their hit hits the ground. And I, I'm for that because the speed, strength and uh, everything of the modern play is awesome. And it's a 360 game. There's a lot of bodies in a confined area, so it's uh, it's still dangerous, but the game has tried to make it as minimise the danger uh, and in the danger of the opposition, an opposition player doing something to you, that's minimal. Like the Thomas Bug situation that happened earlier, that's so rare, yeah. you know, so the things that players get reported for now uh, are really, that's why they're almost careless things, careless, negligent things, they're not really malicious. deliberate malicious violence, but, that, but that's, the, the, I think the game's good for that. If you were AFL CEO for a day and you could make a couple of changes, where would you start? 
Oh, that'd be simple for me. I think we as a game, and I'm talking about the people who, who determine the rules, there's a few simple principles in the game when you think of it com now compared to even 10 years ago. The number of bodies around the football and around the contest and therefore the numbers of tackling that's going on uh, that has tripled in a decade. Why aren't we getting more free kicks to the bloke with the ball? The fact is the game is making... The, ga the game is harder for the guy with the football, but we as a game tend to be helping the tackler and not helping the guy with the footy. That Luke Shuey incident to me, that should be a free kick 100 out of 100. But some smart person, and I use that cynically, at the AFL last year, and it was the coaches that drove this agenda, I believe, said, oh, no, if the bloke with the ball uh, contributes to the high... Con in other words, you've got to be easy to tackle. Is that what you're telling us? I've got to be easy to tackle. So the fact is, if the tackle's a little bit high and you can make, you can push it up so it is a definite high tackle, give the guy with the ball a bit of chance, will you? And uh, the Luke Shuey thing should be a free kick, 100 out of 100, but the rule interpretations allows people to say, oh, yeah, but according to the rules, that's not supposed to be a free kick. Well, if that's not supposed to be a free kick, our game's stuffed. So that is the greatest issue going on in, uh, in footy to me, the, the contest between the guy with the football and the guy who's trying to get it off the bloke with the footy, the game has uh, has very much uh, is now very much advantageous to the guy second of the footy, at the expense of the rights of the bloke who's got it. If you were going to write a letter to your seventeen-year-old self, what do you reckon the sort of thrust of it would be? Uh, well, I, I always go back to the great Alan Jeans, who had a great ability to to. Uh, to use a few words. One of his was that uh, failure cannot cope with perseverance. That'll be from what I'd say. You're gonna fail along the way, but you have gotta persevere. Uh, it, always, uh, it always sort of helps if you know what you want to achieve, but that's sort of like a moving minefield in a way. Uh, so no, the, that might be the thing I would say the most. I try to say it to my grandkids, uh, the, exactly that principle. Failure cannot cope with perseverance. So that ability to keep persevering through all the challenges is a, is a fair starting point if you want to, you know, achieve your life's goals. Players having trouble picking up or getting their footing. Matthews going toward goal. He puts it on its way. Another goal to Matthews. That is goal number six. Matthews flowing for Matthews, look at that from Mark. Great mark. Looking for Matthews. Matthews marks. How strong is lethal Lee? Of all that you've achieved, from a football perspective, what are you most proud of? Probably my eight club champions at Hawthorne, probably. In a golden era. I mean, era. I've been so lucky, when you think of it. The statue at the MCG was one of the most fantastic things that, that has ever accolades, honours. So you think that's fantastic. But probably, and that's all came from, you know, simple principle, that probably the eight club championships at Hawthorne, you know, in an era where we sort of won premierships as well. So you can't add the team success and a lot of the individual success. But I, gee, I've been lucky. I mean, the, the Players Association function was having that trophy named, named after me. I mean, this, I've had enormous amount of uh, honours and acknowledgements from my footy, footy life. But probably, yeah, just the fact the eight club championships probably is, is, is mostly what that all has come from. How often would you go and just have a quiet sandwich by yourself under the statue? Uh, never. <laughs> I sometimes say to my 12-year-old uh, my, uh, my grandson, you want to go look at the statue? Oh, no, not really. I've seen it. <laughs> what does a, a perfect day look like for you now? Uh, well, I, I, I kind of try... I, I always feel, even though I don't exercise heavily, at least going for a brisk walk, that kind of exercise is right. I've got a walking machine and, and the exercise bike, so I will do. I'll try to do you know, your 40 minutes on that, and then take for the do the dogs down the, uh, the down the for walk and have a coffee, and uh, and then that that gets me to mid morning, and then after that the day whatever whatever transpires. But I always like to start my day off with that routine. I am a victim of routine, Hamish, which is something one of my flaws. I like a bit of routine. Well, I don't know whether it's a flaw. It's certainly who you are, though. You've given a lot of halftime addresses throughout. Your career? How'd you go with the speeches as father of the bride? Um, oh, actually, I didn't have to do those, as it turned out. Uh, oh, did I? I must have. Oh, I can't remember. Yeah, no, I must have. Uh, no, well, that's yeah, well, that's a little different. Uh, 
Yeah, that at least you can pre-plan them, Hamish. The thing about the half-time speech, you can't pre-plan them. They're all off the cuff when you walk down at quarter-time, half-time, three-quarter-time. One of the things always sticks in my mind on that one, though, you, like when you, you'd walk down through the crowd mostly, and if things aren't going well, the crowd will be like, oh, Matthews, get into them. Because the footy fans tend to still think if you yell at the players, that'll actually make them play better. I mean, it's almost the opposite. Like, you, you know, I always think one of the things, if you talk about coaching, is you've got to be the opposite of the rest of the world. So at half time, if the team's going bad, they don't need to be yelled at. They want to plan. How do we, what do we do to resurrect this? Not yell at them because they're already feeling down in the dumps. You know, yelling at them is, might be good for their soul or something and gets it gets the, vents the coach's spleen. But what they want when things are going bad, people want to know how do we turn this around? What's our plan? What's our method? Not not yell at us and uh, blame us. For, they need a solution rather than abuse. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Some quick hands just to finish off. Who was your favourite footy player to watch growing up? Um, well, when I was a little kid, Alan Aylett at North Melbourne, I had number 17, which is his number on my little North Melbourne jumper when I was in the 60s, when I was a little kid growing up. The best you've played with? Uh, Peter Knights, I always give that. We played exactly the same 17 years. Exactly the same 17 years. No, I always put Peter Knights as that. And from a toughest opponent standpoint? I always think Barry Lawrence, who I played on a little bit when I was young, who played, he almost played centre back, but he played back pocket for St Kilda in that early 70s and he was always a tougher, because he was bigger than me. I was mostly even, I was mostly bigger than most of my back pocket, I was heavier, you know, bulkier. But So Barry Lawrence, I think, was the one I always nominate for that. Best footy advice you've ever been given? Um, keep your eyes on the footy and stand up. Don't fall over. Has there ever been anything um, in the media that has been untrue about you that you've had to live with? Um, if you talk about, like, the sort of the written media or the more public media, I mean, you know, things might get exaggerated and, and embellished. Certainly when I coached Collingwood, things would turn up on the back page of the Herald Sun, and I thought, Jesus, I didn't think that was that big deal, but not necessarily totally untrue. I assume you have to compartmentalise everything that's untrue and just leave it in a box and just put it to the side. Yeah, the, the only thing I'd ever do, I'd never, I, if anyone, the only thing I would occasionally do is if there was a, an error of fact, I might ring the journal and say, just that was an error of fact. I mean, whatever your opinion is, that's, you know, that's, that, I'd never be ringing a, ringing a, a journal about an opinion. But if, if they had actually, try and nip it in the bud, if there was just a wrong, a fact that was incorrect. Uh, to try and say, no, that is not correct, that fact. That, yeah, but that's rarely too. Last one for you. You've got two daughters. If one was 25 again and came home and said she was engaged to a player you had coached at any stage in your life, who do you hope it was? Simon Black would be a fair starting point for that one. Yeah, he's perfect, isn't he? Oh, well, yeah, no, it's really, yeah, well we got. I mean, yeah, no, that, that, yeah, you, you might be able to go further, but Simon Black, let's, just, just to nominate one. Leith, I've loved working with you uh, over the years. Thank you for your time today. Thanks, Hamish. Good fun. We're talking footy.